Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we're looking at verses 4 through 8, introductory material. There was a lot to cover there, a lot of things to, to try to serve as a foundation for us as we get into the text now. And let me remind you just of the first three verses and kind of what they of Revelation. It's given to show the church things that must soon take place. So the events that are described in Revelation were about to begin. It, it began then and it continues today. We're still living in this spiritual warfare that we see described here. Uh, the visit, vision held immediate relevance, even though not everything described occur, occurred immediately. Not everything in Revelation has already happened. There's still very clear descriptions of the second coming and the return of Christ. So Jesus received the revelation and then made it known to John through an angel. And that idea comes from Daniel 2, this, this phrase, made it known, because God made known Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And then Daniel interpreted that dream symbolically to him. Now, John will transition from that prologue where he is described how the revelation came to him through an angel, and then he has borne witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, and all that he saw in that vision, right? And then he declares a blessing, basically a benediction for those who read aloud the words of this prophecy, and then who hear and who keep the word. Now, the reading aloud of the words of this prophecy is a reference to the, the past would not have had their own copies of the word to read. Congregation, the people who in, in, at this time would not have had their own copies of the word to read along with him. They would have simply heard, and then they're blessed if they keep, if they obey that revelation. So um, John transitions to this greeting now, where in the greeting from 4 through 8, he really emphasizes the triune God. Um, especially Jesus. He'll focus most of his attention, verses 5 through 7, upon the Son of God. And if I could summarize this, it's in your handout there, I would say the, the only triune God who is sovereign over all sends greeting to his redeemed church. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this text and this greeting that is from you to your redeemed church. Lord, help us to receive that, to, to recognize the tremendous privilege it is to be greeted by our Creator, to be greeted warmly in your name, and to be reminded of your attributes here in this this opening section of Revelation. Lord, we that you would help us to have eyes to see this truth, to have ears to hear, and to have hearts that are softened to respond in obedience, whether that be conviction from sin or ultimately to be comforted by the gospel. Lord, we pray that your spirit would do a work in and through your word and that we would give you all the praise and glory for what you've accomplished. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So listen, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. 
John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. This is God's holy word. So the common greeting here opens with, with grace and peace, and it's extended to the church for all three persons of the Trinity. Screen's messing up, isn't it? Okay. Um, you have the, the grace and peace extended to the church from all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if the church is going to persevere, they must know that their sermon manuscript is available elsewhere. They must know the God to whom all worship is due. Okay. So when false and counterfeit alternatives are, are presented to the world, the church needs to be confident in the God they worship. And so he, he describes that God in his triune uh, being. He is, he is, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us, question six, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Right? Scripture is clear that there is only one God. And yet there are several indications of a plurality within the Godhead. The angel of the Lord is identified with God, and yet he remains distinct from God. Um, he's, uh, likewise, the Spirit of God is described as having divine attributes operating as God's personal agent. So there's three persons in the Godhead that are fully united to one another and distinct from one another at the same time. So I heard this story of a, of a candidate who was on the floor of Presbytery being examined at a oral office, and he was asked to explain the Trinity. And so he rightly gave that definition from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? He could Give it perfectly. But then the questioner asked him to elaborate further. And so the candidate began to describe the work of each person within the Trinity, sort of describing the economic, the work of each person. What does God the Father do? God the Son, what does he do and accomplish? And what does the Spirit do? We can describe that. But then the questioner still wasn't satisfied. He asked him, okay, but how can there be three distinct persons in one being? And finally, the candidate acknowledged, I, I don't know. And with that humility, with that acknowledgement of the limits of our ability to fully comprehend God, he, he passed. And I think that, that's the, the point here is that there's always going to be a mystery about the Trinity. 
Right? There remain a mystery, no matter how hard we try to find illustrations that make sense of God's, of his triune being. I think you find yourself sinking in, in quicksand as soon as you either add or take away from the definition that we have in the Westminster. Nothing on earth provides an adequate picture of our triune God, which is why he forbid the second commandment, Exodus 20, verse, right, in, in physical form. The second commandment, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. So this passage provides evidence of the equality between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think it's a passage you can turn to to point out the Trinity, to defend it, because each person is present at the throne and yet distinct from one another, and they're all involved in greeting the church. They're all involved in extending a greeting of grace and peace, which cannot come from anyone but God to his people. So let's consider the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. And you have a description of him here in verses 4 and 8. The Father is described as him who is and who was and who is to come. You have that same phrase repeated again in verse 8. So there's a, an allusion here to God's name, Yahweh, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, translated I am. And there's an allusion there. And, and in fact, in Isaiah, you have um, a, a threefold phrase that is a take on the word I am, right? Of, of him who was and is and is to come. It's become common in Jewish tradition to expand the Lord's name into that threefold phrase. You see it in Isaiah 41, verse 4, Isaiah 48, verse 10, Isaiah 44, verse 6, and 48, 12. But then in verse 8, he's also titled as the Alpha and the Omega and the Almighty. So we, we hear this again at the conclusion of John's vision, at the end of Revelation. The one who sits on the throne of the new heavens and the new earth declares in Revelation 21, verse 6, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And yet in Revelation 1.17, speaking of the Son of Man, this vision of the Son of Man, look at, look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. And then in Revelation 22 verse 13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So there's a parallel of these phrases referencing the Father as well as the Son. And so it's actually debated by some commentators that, that whether this verse 8 is, is actually spoken by the Son here or if it's a reference to the Father. Um, I, the, the, their close association makes sense, right? If John is giving us a Trinitarian theology, then, then the descriptions that relate to the Father and the Son would be similar, right? However, I do see a, a close repetition here in the phrase, who is and who was and who is to come at, at the beginning in verse 4 and then at the end in verse 8 as, as designating the Father, right? It kind of brackets this greeting in beginning and end with, with references to the Father. So Alpha and Omega, what does that mean? Well, any of you probably know that's the first and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's like saying God is A to Z. 
and it's a merism. It's a, it's a way of saying God is the beginning and the end and everything in between, right? He's at every point, and there's an alphabet. He's the beginning and ending, which means he represents every point in between, and there's never been a time or place from which God was absent. R.C. Sproul said it very well in Chosen by God. Some of you will recall this quote where he said, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. It is, if, not, if God is not sovereign over everything, if there is one molecule that is stray, then who's to say something else couldn't develop out of that, right? That where God's promises would not be fulfilled. No, God must remain sovereign over every point. And knowing that the Almighty God is sovereign over every place and circumstance throughout history gives us confidence so that we will endure through our own times of tribulation and persecution. And that's what he's trying to prepare them for. That's why he's giving them this description of God before they enter into a time of tremendous persecution under Domitian. It's important for John to begin with this description of the attributes of God before elaborating on the intense persecution that they would face. Because they would need to to rely upon this description of God. We would all be devastated apart from a sovereign God. And our confidence is only strengthened as he goes on to refer to God the Spirit. You have this phrase in uh, the second part of verse 4, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Some would argue that those seven spirits are angelic beings or creatures somehow in this position before his throne. Um, but I think uh, it's clear to me that this is a, a reference to the Holy Spirit. But if it's saying that there are seven spirits, should we be considering now this nine-person Godhead? Should we be talking about nine persons, right? The Father, the Son, and the seven spirits. No, again, it's another example of John using symbolic numbers. Remember, seven is this description of fullness or complete, uh, a perfect number. And the position where it falls in this greeting as, as speaking of the Father and the Son and, then, and the Holy Spirit, it would, it would make sense if he's still talking about the Godhead here. So there is, is, is not some obscure reference here to, to heavenly beings. And again, remember, creatures, they cannot, no matter how majestic they are, extend a greeting of grace and peace to the church. Right? It's, it's, it's not in their power or their ability to give grace and peace. That must come from God. So this is describing the fullness of the Holy Spirit here. And John references the, the seven spirits three more times in Revelation. In Revelation 3.1, you have Jesus standing in the midst of the church and he holds the, it says he holds the seven spirits of God, or he has the, the seven spirits of God. Revelation 3.1. In Revelation 4.5, you're, you're given this picture of the heavenly throne, and John sees seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. 
So the seven torches represent the flame that is on top of the lampstands that Jesus or the Son of Man is seen standing in the midst of. So here's the the imagery is of the Spirit of God on top of the, the church or lighting, empowering the church of God. It's the imagery of the Spirit of God empowering the church to stand firm as light bearers in the midst of darkness. And then again in Revelation 5, 6, you have the lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So now you have again a reference to seven, but now seven eyes that are the seven spirits sent out into all the earth, really being sent out from the lamb who is standing as if he had been slain. All of these can be very confusing if you don't have in the background Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 10. You can look that up later, but in Zechariah chapter 4, you have this image of uh, this vision of seven lamps representing the one Spirit of God. And then in verse 10, these seven, which would refer to the lamps, these seven lamps are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Again, it's, it's all a reflection of the Spirit of God empowering His people, the church, to do what God has called them to. So these seven spirits symbolize the fullness of the Holy Spirit and His divine work in heaven and through the church on earth. And so we are invited to worship God because the Spirit of God has effectually enabled us to worship Him. It is the Spirit of God who works faith in us. It's the Spirit of God who unites us to Christ by that faith. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. He enlightens our minds. He renews our wills. The only reason we embrace Jesus Christ is because the Holy Spirit has persuaded and enabled us to do so. All of that is just a summary of the shorter catechism, questions 29 through 31. The true worship must be offered in and through the Spirit of God. This is worship in spirit and in truth. It's the only worship that is acceptable to God. And you might be thinking, well, if this is a reference to the Trinity and you have God the Father being described and then you have the Spirit being described, it seems like it's a unique order, right? The the Father, the Spirit, and then the Son. Um, I certainly had that thought as I read through this in order, but it's it's quite possible that John is portraying um, this unique order because he's following the layout of the temple or the tabernacle. And if you've seen an image of the layout, the foundation, what do you have in the very center of that? You have the Holy of Holies, right? And that would be sort of represented as the throne of God. That is the, the, the presence of God in the Holy of Holies to which the priests could only enter once a year on the Day of Atonement, and they had to have bells tied to their ankles, and they had to have a rope tied to their ankles so that if they died, they could hear that the bells are no longer chiming, so it must be because they're dead, and now they can drag them out without anyone else being killed to go into the Holy of Holies. It was a very elaborate setup to prevent people from entering into a place that they could not handle, where they could not see the glory of the Lord in that place. So the Holy of Holies there in the center, and then you have Just before that, in the holy place, outside of the holy holies, but still within the holy place, you have several other elements, one being the candlestick or the lampstand, right, with seven stems upon which 
would be the flames representing the um, Holy Spirit. And then outside of that, in the very front, and still within the courtyard of the temple or the tabernacle, you have the bronze altar. Right? And so upon the bronze altar, you have uh, what would be here in this vision, the Son of Man sac- being sacrificed, sacrificing himself, right? So before the Holy of Holies, within the holy place would be the lampstand with seven stems representing the Holy Spirit. And finally, the Son is at the altar whose sacrificial death atones for our sins. And so now we come to the Son and the description of the Son. The, the greatest portion of the greeting is, is devoted here to the description of Jesus Christ. And so let's begin with this trifold description of these um, in verse 5. You have Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. The faithful witness is Jesus who, who suffered. He was faithful unto death. He becomes our preeminent example of perseverance. He's the firstborn of the dead. It's a reference to his resurrection, right? In Colossians 1.18, he's the first fruits of the resurrection that all believers will enjoy at his return, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23. And then you have him described as the ruler of kings on earth. It's a reference to his sovereign reign over every earthly kingdom now and forever, and he received that authority, that reign, upon his ascension to the Father. So all three concepts are found in, in Psalm 89, verses 27 through 37. Okay, all three of those phrases, uh, the idea of him being a faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, you find it in Psalm 89, 27, and 37. And they refer to, the God's, or to God's preservation of the Davidic throne through Jesus Christ's eternal reign, over all of creation. And so reflecting upon this brings John to a statement of praise about Christ's redemptive work. He says it's out of, out of his love for us that he freed us from our sins by his blood. The blood of Jesus has released us from the penalty and power of sin. In fact, the, the term there for freed is, is, of, is of being set loose. It's of a prisoner being unchained. He's being released from the penalty and power of sin. We've been forgiven and we've been given victory over sin. As long as we remain in this body of flesh, of course, we will fight against the temptation. We'll fight with sin, but we are no longer enslaved to it, as John says in his gospel, chapter 8. The Son has set us free. Our freedom from sin allows us to be sanctified, right? It's, it's, it's that freedom from sin that allows us to grow and mature in our walk with the Lord and to ultimately enjoy and experience eternal life as we read in Romans chapter 6, verse 22. So Christ's redeeming work has made the church a kingdom of priests. He has made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. Well, since the fall, access to God has only been possible through a mediator. There had to be a mediator between God and man. And so the Lord established Aaron and followed by that the entire tribe of Leviticus, or the Levites. 
to facilitate worship. Think about this. God spoke to the people through prophets, and then the people worshiped God through priests. So in both directions, you had to have a mediator, God speaking to his people and his people then responding in worship and praise to God. But Jesus Christ has now become that permanent mediator between God and man. Jesus has revealed to us in his person and work the word of God, and by his own shed blood, he has granted us access to God once and for all. So we no longer need a priestly mediator in the same sense they did under the old covenant. Christ has become our high priest, the final high priest, the only high priest, the true priest whom all other priests pointed forward to. There's no more need for ongoing sacrifices, nor is there any more need for this hierarchy of, of priestly mediators, as the Roman Catholic Church has taught. And there's only two kinds of priests today, the high priest and then the priesthood of all believers. So first of all, we should understand that the, the holy priesthood means this, that every member of the church has equal access to God. The one who stands up here behind the pulpit doesn't have a, have a, a leg up to God. My prayers aren't any more effective than your prayers. Right? We share in the benefits of Christ's completed work. And yet in, second, uh, or in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we read this. It, it helps us to see that even though we no longer have physical sacrifices on a physical altar, we do bring our spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right? We must all present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, Romans 12.1. And so, of course, the only thing that makes those sacrifices acceptable and holy is the blood of Jesus. It's the sacrifice of the lamb who was slain. If you believe in him, then Jesus Christ has already set you apart. He has already clothed you in the garments that have been washed by his blood. He has already made you clean. And he has given you access to the foot of his throne, not once a year, but daily. Whenever you want to go before him, you can come and worship him. You've been granted daily access to God. And so we can see why John concludes his doxology with this summary in verse 6 of, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're going to have to look at verse 7 next week, but I want to close with this thought. I think it's appropriate to close with this thought on worship. Worship, as John articulates here in, in this greeting, involves both God's revelation of himself and then the believer's response of praise. Right? Worship and word always go together. They should never be separated. God's word guides our worship at every point of the service. That's why every element is an act of worship, including the giving of our gifts and offerings. Right? It's an act of worship. And so we don't want to neglect that or get distracted 
during that, right? It's, it's all an act of worship. And it all is guided by God's word. This is why we call this whole event a worship service. Right? It's, it's not just when we're singing that we're then worshiping. Right? And this isn't just the, this isn't the worship team. I'm part of the worship team, right? We are all worship, we're all being led to worship God by his word as we reflect upon what he's telling us and, and responding to that in praise. Rick Phillips argues that the fulfilling of your priestly role, your fulfilling of that role is the primary reason that you should come to church. I like that. Come in order to offer sacrifices of praise to the living God. Yes, followers of believe, uh, uh, or fellowship of believers and then evangelism of unbelievers, that can be a byproduct of the worship service, certainly. But the primary reason you are here is to fulfill your calling as a holy priesthood to worship and honor your king and to declare his praises, not just here, but as you go out, to continue to be a witness, a testimony a testimony, a living testimony of God's grace. That's our fundamental purpose in gathering week after week. It's to offer worship to the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. So let's thank him now. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this reminder from your word that you are triune, that it is that as we pray to you, our Father, we pray to you as, as children to a Father. We've been adopted into this family, and yet we pray through the access that has been granted by your Son and through the enabling of your Holy Spirit. So even now as we pray to you, it is, it is an involvement of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We give you all praise and honor. We long to do so in the rest of this day and, and, the, and the rest of our time in, in this incredible book, Revelation. May this be a, a foundation for us to come back to time and time again to reflect upon this description of our triune God who has redeemed us to worship and praise you. Lord, help us to do that now as we sing to you, as we worship our King. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.